at Joel's house again this evening. So he's and Sam, after I made that smart alley comment, can I just clarify, we love having you. <laughs> I was thinking of midnight or one. Everybody leaves at 7.15. So I'm just rubbing salt in the wound now. It's like, you guys are just so hospitable. Thank you for moving seats. <laughs> you can't do a good thing. I wanted to say uh, <laughs> no, no, no. That's <laughs> no good deed, you know. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's. I, I hope that. Um, in fact, as we we keep looking at houses, uh, just sort of. Well, not houses. We're sort of looking at one house at a time. We don't have enough mental space to sort of. And um, I don't know. One of the things we really think about is sort of the previous occupants and their beliefs and their, their chosen activities and their pet sins in that house and just really praying over a house. And, and that's why it's great to be somewhere where um, even a, a place is much prayed over and it's, it's good. I hope that you feel that this evening and sort of sense God's presence in, uh, in this house where we are um, uh, blessed to be where God has been before. So... Um, He's moved here before, and I pray he does it again this evening. We're going to look at Matthew 20, but before we uh, dive into that, I'm going to set the context. I hope so. I, I hope it's not uh, pretext. I hope it really is good contextual, um, literal, exegetical context here. Um, of and, that, and that's where I want to go to start with is Hebrews 12, and just the first three verses. Uh, very familiar... I'm going to kind of introduce with these three verses and say a few words, and then we'll jump into to Matthew 20, and hopefully it will be uh, straightforward enough and quick enough. I, I know that Dayton's playing, and I don't want to... to <laughs> Oklahoma, Dayton, you know, you guys might be... 6.10, I think, is the time, so I don't want you to miss it. I, Joel's got the remote control right there, in fact. Uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 read. Uh, I'm reading out of the NASB just because um, my parents bought it for me 12 years ago. Uh, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then the few thoughts I want to give you as we begin are... Uh, or this, and it kind of boils down to, if we endeavor to see beyond the grave, we have to look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, this is sort of classic apologetics, in fact. If we want to have any concept of what is beyond the grave, what we need is someone who has been there, and so we need to lean into the life and death and resurrection of Jesus if we're to have any idea of what lies beyond the grave and what the future holds for us. And what is astounding is, seeing beyond our death, and seeing in the death of Christ, does not just reorient our priorities, 
It doesn't just make possible the fulfillment of our duties. It doesn't just give us sort of a life of hedonism or legalism. What it actually does, it changes our hearts and our desires. When you see life beyond the grave in the person of Jesus Christ, it actually rewires us. So that you, and this, is, this Thrive idea has been in my mind, you actually flourish in the Christian life when you see beyond the grave. And it's not just the motivation to do your duty. It rewires you to flourish in the Christian life. You actually be, you live differently because you're wired differently then. We are bound for a future life and we're rewired for this one. Grace changes us. Uh, grace beyond the grave, grace in the life and death of Jesus Christ changes us. And we do this, of course, with a cloud of witnesses. And so, uh, it makes me think of one of the most influential people in your life who had died 200 years ago is in fact a guy by the name of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher who actually never left his hometown. He did the same things every day. People supposedly set their watches by him. He walked to the university every day. He ate lunch at, every day at the same time. He walked back home at the same day every time. And his thinking, in fact, has led recent philosophers and thinkers and even theologians to say, we live in a post-Kant universe. You can't get around his thinking. And basically what he did was he separated happiness, flourishing, from what is good. And he said, happiness is sort of this area where sinners live, you know, people who are just completely selfish live, and the good is people who do their duty. If you can do your duty, that makes you a good person. You need to pursue what is right simply because it's right. It does nothing for you. And if you, are, if you think that seeing beyond the grave into the future life of Jesus Christ, future life in the presence of God, will somehow motivate, that will be enough that you can, you don't need any happiness, you don't need flourishing, you don't need thriving, you can just do your duty because it's the right thing to do. And you got encouragement in the scripture, you got the command of Jesus, and it's the right thing to do, and you better do it. And for, for Immanuel Kant, that was it. You better do what's right. And that thinking is everywhere in the evangelical church. Now, mind you, there are people who have completely rejected that and have gone over and are hedonists. But legalism has really kind of taken over. And in fact, if you read more of Immanuel Kant, what he says in his very next book after proposing this is, oh, you know what, that, that thinking, it's true, but here's the deal. No one does it. No one does what is right. No, not a single person has ever, this is, this is what rightness and goodness is, it's doing your duty for the sake of your duty, no one has ever done it. Therefore, here's how we should all live. Social contract. We make kind of a pact with people around us to live at peace with one another. That's the best you can hope for. And this is his endeavoring to redeem Christianity from, you know, the attacks of modernity. You will do what's right for the sake of what's right. And you live in the, the realm of duty. You do what's right because it's right and you better, be, better behave. So my, my sort of, um, my segue, I guess, into Matthew 20 out of this, and I mean, you start looking around and seeing people, duty-driven people, 
you really got to think to yourself, we need rewired. We need something rewired in us because if it's just I do my duty because it's the right thing to do and I better do it, you're going to fall flat on your face. And the guy who came up with the idea said the same thing. It's not just me. Uh, so I want to reflect on the parable of the vineyard. And I know it might not seem like the most natural transition, uh, but I, I hope that this, um, these few thoughts maybe draw something out of this parable that we haven't seen before. At least it did for me, and that means that I might be wrong. But I uh, will give it a shot, and you can tell me. Uh, so we're going to actually look at Matthew 20 tonight, 1 through 16, kind of is where we're going to land, and it's not an unfamiliar parable, so I'll read it, and uh, then we'll just reflect on it a little bit, and that'll be that, that'll be our evening. Uh, but may God bless the reading of His Word, um, through it we know Him. Matthew 20, 1 through 16, read like this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, and pretty common introduction here. You look at this, this kind of introductions all over Matthew, especially Matthew 13. Kingdom of Heaven is like. Kingdom of Heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. So we're supposed to assume this is uh, what, six in the morning, first hour, six in the morning. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So three hours later, is about uh, nine in the morning. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about noon, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, so it's uh, three in the afternoon, and did the same thing and went out in the eleventh hour and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day long? Five o'clock in the afternoon, and you're still standing here. They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. <coughs> but he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. To long for your own good from a generous God is self-interest and is decidedly okay. If God promises you something, and you long for that, if there's a reward in your future, and you act in accordance with that, if you're like, yeah, I want that so badly, I will, I will go after that. That's self-interest. And self-interest is what, just what rational people do. Rational people are self-interested. If you're not self-interested, you won't make rational decisions. If you're not self-interested, you'll have no interest in heaven, redemption, Jesus Christ. None. Because 
What do you care? You're not self-interested. Now, here's the kicker. To long for another person's good from a generous God, if you want what somebody else is getting from a generous God, that is, in fact, envy. If you long for what God wants to give to you, that self-interest and joy is found in that. If you long for what God is giving to somebody else, that's envy. And the irony is, it's the same thing. In fact, what you're longing for is God himself. You long for God face to face. He's your greatest good. But if you want another's enjoyment of God, you're going to miss it entirely. It's, it's like going to a baseball game with a good friend. And you sit next to each other in box seats. And the game is a good one, so you must not be in Ohio. You know, you're... you're except the, recently. Recently. <laughs> Unless, the, of course, the All-Star game is, you're, you're at Cincinnati, you're at the All-Star game. You have, well, I mean, regular tickets are 200 bucks for the home run derby, so I don't know, box seats are a couple grand. And, uh, and Maggie's company has, has box seats at the Red Stadium, and so she invites you, and she invites your good friend, and you sit there, and right in front of you, playing out, is the National League actually doing decent. And you're just enthralled, you're like, this is fantastic. But no, it's, it's not good enough. Because you look over and your friend is having the time of his life. I went to a baseball game with Wayne Downing's, I don't know if you guys know Wayne Downing, Wayne Downing's oldest son, Evan, years ago. We went to a Columbus Clippers game for the Iwana night. And it was one of the most enjoyable things I've ever been to. Because it was a triple-A ball Clippers game on a you know, Tuesday at 6. And it was, it was a nothing. It was no, And Evan was like... I don't think he'd ever been to a stadium before. <gasps> you see that? They got Kayla. Oh my goodness. Oh, oh hey, did you, did you see that? And it was fantastic because he's enjoying it so much. If I was distracted by if I was pulled away and I began to want his experience of the game, somebody's enjoying it so much that I want their delight and I begin to get envious of it. Like, oh man, I want, I wish I was enjoying the game like that. I wish that was my experience of the game. It's the same, I'm right there. We're, we're, we're four inches from each other. I can watch the game too. But I'm not enjoying it because he's enjoying it so much. It's bothering me. He's having a good time and it annoys me. He's having pleasure and delight. And I, I, I hate it because he's enjoying something. And that's, of course, incredibly ironic because what he's enjoying is the exact same thing that's going on in front of me but I'm not enjoying it because I'm envious of his good. His experience of the good bothers me. You only desire the other's experience of it, and that's envy. And when you do not long for God's good, you are unable to bear the burden of, and this, listen to this, when you do not long for God's good for you, you cannot bear the burden of flourishing. Say that again. When you do not long for God's good for you, you cannot bear the burden of flourishing. And that's what I want to kind of hone in on tonight that might be sort of a sideways glance at this particular parable. That there is a burden to flourishing in the Christian life. You must long for the good of the life to come in order to be wired to flourish in this life. 
Those who worked for 12 hours bore the burden and the scorching heat of the day, while those who worked for only one hour spent 11 hours waiting for the opportunity to work. 11 hours in the marketplace waiting for the opportunity that you got 11 hours before to flourish because this is what you were made for. The owner of the vineyard knows exactly what you were made for. You were made for happiness in this life and the vision of God in the life to come. And here's what that looks like. The burden and the scorching of the day. The owner of the vineyard wishes to give even those who have not had the opportunity to bear the weight of work the joy of reward. So he's generous. Even if you haven't had the opportunity to spend your day, to spend your life bearing the burden of flourishing, he's still going to reward you. He's still going to give you himself in the life to come. But right now in this life, if you want to enjoy the burden of this life, which is to flourish, then you've got to focus on the reward of God in the next. God will give the vision of himself to everyone who has entered into his labor, even if they have not an opportunity to bear the weight of flourishing. I think we talked about this roundaboutly last week. We talked about marriage as being even better because it's hard. The reward is in the work. You know your spouse and you love your spouse all the more because of the work, but only if you're rewired to enjoy it. And the only way you start to get rewired to enjoy the work of marriage is by focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his payment and atonement for your sin. This same principle is broadened out to our reward in the kingdom. I am being generous, says Jesus, in your eventual vision of God. You will be blown away. But, here's the kicker, I am being generous even now as you bear the burden of the day. This is a gift to you, bearing the burden of the day. Now, I think it prompts this question. Is a burden, or specifically the burden of flourishing, is, is having a burden somehow contrary to happiness? Since it's hard, can it not also be happy? Aren't they in conflict? If your life is hard, if God gives you a hard path, is that contrary to a happy path? Now, I want to deal with this objection so that we can begin to clarify what I mean by the burden of flourishing, or what even flourishing means. But, of course, you'd have to learn what happiness means, too. Natural happiness climaxes in Christ-like character. If you want to be happy in this life, it is a character issue. In fact, even the ancients who weren't followers of Christ were pressing the same idea and saying, if you want to be happy, it is virtuous life, what we know to be a Christ-like life. God is at work bringing people into salvation and transforming people into his image. But what this looks like is the shaping of our character. We become people who pursue the image of Christ in all things, and this hinges on our habits. All right. So, for instance, as adults, we are, in fact, responsible for things that children and teenagers, that some people, like Reagan, for instance, can get away with. If she has really good intentions and she buys a present for her mom for Mother's Day, because she's on it, right? You know when Mother's Day is, right? No. You know what month it's in? 
That's fair enough. See, you can get away with that. In fact, you love your mom dearly, I'm assuming. And you're like, oh, I'm not quite sure what Mother's Day is. And that's all right, because your dad will remind you. Your mom might remind you. And you can get away, and then you'll have really good intentions, and maybe you'll get something. Or maybe at the last, you'll get something a day late. Or maybe you'll just be really kind to her that day because you forgot to buy anything. And you can get away with it. And that's fine. In fact, you haven't done anything wrong. Because you're not your dad. If your dad forgets, if he's thoughtless, if he means to do well, he even gets the gift, but the day passes him. He had good intentions. If he put together a good plan and something came up, thoughtlessness happened, somebody called from work, he said yes, he should have said no, he wasn't thinking. He's actually, he's done something wrong. Whereas you, if, some, if you forgot, oh, it's, you haven't actually done anything wrong because you can be thoughtless and that's all right. Whereas if, you, if you're thoughtless, if you don't apply your Christ-like character well, if you have a Christ-like attitude towards Mother's Day and you want to gift that to your wife in some tangible way, but you don't, you don't do it well, you miss the mark, you buy her the same thing you bought her last year because you forgot, you know, then you've missed the mark somehow, you've done something wrong. And so the chief of the natural virtues is prudence. Practical wisdom is the chief of the natural virtues. You need to apply your Christ-like character wisely, thoughtfully, prudently. You have to live to the situation. You have to be present to the moment. You have to bring the Christ-like character to bear on a particular moment, and that takes quite a bit of wisdom. It's the art and science of living Christ-like, because you have to bring it to bear appropriately. The right thing to do for your wife isn't what Levi should do for Maggie, because she's different. It's a different situation. You have to be wise about how you live as Christ lived. Now, this, for instance, is like a brilliant pianist who loves playing, very disciplined pianist, loves playing the piano, enjoys playing the piano, works hard at playing the piano, gets into an orchestra, becomes part of this fantastic performance, and plays at the wrong time. During the wrong movement, they come out and start playing their gorgeous piece and, and, and perform it well. Now, they might still enjoy it, they might still have a good time performing this piece, but because they did it at the wrong time, because they weren't thoughtful and prudent about it, they weren't as happy as they could have been. Now, mind you, it's a burden to pay that close of attention. It's a, it's a burden to, to play at exactly the right time and do it exactly the right way, but it only adds to your happiness. You flourish because you paid attention. You flourish because at the right moment and in the right context, you got to show off the discipline that your piano practice had, had um, added to this performance. It was a burden to live prudently, but it only increased your happiness. We must bring our character into each moment appropriately. And this in turn flows into the supernatural virtues. There are some supernatural virtues that you can experience even now. Specifically, faith, hope, and love. These are gifts from God that you can experience and enjoy even now. 
And the chief supernatural virtue is, what do you think this chief supernatural virtue is? The greatest of these is love. Love is the chief supernatural virtue. Because it bridges not only the gap between yourself and others, but it also bridges the gap between this life and the life to come. Love will not end when you eventually die. Your love somehow bridges this gap between now and your future life with Christ. Romans 13.8. You guys know Romans 13.8? It's often read in... Uh, this is, a good, this is a good Maggie verse right here. It has to do with money and debt. Do you know Romans 13.8? Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love. The debt of love, right? And then IV reads, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. It is a debt. It's a burden to love. It is somehow something you owe. But not a burden that stands between you and happiness, but one that opens you up to it. Paying the debt you owe of love only adds to your flourishing. Bearing the burden of prudence, applying Christ-like character wisely at the right moment is a burden that only adds to your flourishing. Applying love in every moment is a burden. It's a debt. And it only adds to your flourishing. And I use the word burden then as a part for a whole. It is, it is to say it is hard. It is difficult. It is scorching even. It is painful at times. It is what you were wired to do. For loving will remove you from the isolation that was yours prior to knowing Christ and cause you to dwell in Christ, which is a reflection of that Hebrews 12 passage. Love is, bridges that gap between you and the cloud of witnesses, and love connects you even to fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. It's bridging that gap between you and others and you and Christ. So bearing the burden of the day is itself a generous gift from God. We are no longer those who wait for God to call us into his vineyard, but instead are those who flourish in the scorching heat of the day because of, not in spite of, the pain of life. We are drawn to and transformed by Christ's death on the cross. And because of his resurrection, we have a vision of a future beyond the grave that is greater than our wildest imagination. And so where does Jesus go when he finishes this parable? Where is he going, in fact, geographically? He is pointed towards Calvary. He has taken this whole kingdom mentality, motif, idea, ideology. He's taken everything about this kingdom and pointed it to Calvary and saying, here's where the kingdom of God is. And so he finishes this parable and says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. 
And I think that is something of the burden of flourishing with which we now live and which we can um, take, I hope, as a um, helpful counterbalance to that naivety, that sort of youthful naivety that we sometimes approach flourishing and happiness with and be like, Christ's life is the happy life. Yes, it is. And boy, does that make it hard. <laughs> like that is itself why it's so hard. Because he's got something in mind for your character and he's shaping it. And that's the burden and the scorching of the day. And thank God that he's allowed you the privilege to spend those years bearing that burden. He's very generous in giving that to you and will, in fact, be beyond comprehension generous in the age to come. And so we need to um, fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can bear that burden of flourishing. Uh, that's what I have. Just sort of some brief thoughts there. Uh, I hope that's helpful. Uh, you, in response to that, what are your kind of reactionary thoughts to that? Same, I thought about the, what is an old saying, uh, 